excited for tonight. I am excited that all of you decided to come to the house of the Lord and spend time in fellowship together and opening God's word and hopefully getting a little bit more like him and a little less like the world. Um, before we get into a word, I want to take this opportunity to dismiss the ladies Bible study. And I think all the kids are already gone to practice. So that should be it. Youth, sorry, youth. For everyone else who will be staying in here, if you would like to join me in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to be starting in verse 16. I'll give everybody a minute to kind of get situated. I feel like um, fall lasted for about one week, and now it's pitch black all the time and freezing cold, so I, I don't know how I feel about that just yet, but... 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. It says, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word, that your word would fall on good ground and in due season would spring forth and bring forth fruit within our lives, Lord. Help us to hide that word within us that we might not sin against thee. We give you alone all the glory for you alone are worthy of it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I don't have a, a super long or maybe not even a, a super deep message for you tonight. Um, but if you'll allow me just for a little bit, I want to talk about this, this topic. In all things... Give thanks. In all things, give thanks. We're going to come back to that passage there in 1 Thessalonians a little later in the message. But it's that time of year. And it's kind of, honestly, it's kind of hard to believe it's that time of year again. That it won't be long and we'll be sitting around a turkey. And then not too long after that, we'll be ringing in a new year. Uh, I, I feel like this every year. It seems to go by faster and faster. And before you know it, uh, we're going to be in 2023. I tried to think back to when I graduated high school back in 2001 and how that was like super crazy at the time. Like we're going to be in the 2000s and, and everybody had kind of a hard time wrapping their brain around about that. Now it's going to be 2023. And it's so weird because it seems like you blink and it's gone. I was looking at pictures of my kiddos uh, from previous holidays and I remember Caitlin, who's now 14, I remember her being two years old, running around the, the, the living room, um, saying that she was singing praise music as she was screaming at the top of her lungs. Now I can't get her to talk to just about anyone. It goes by so fast. And oftentimes around this time of year, for me, for me personally, it's a time of, of reflection. It's a time for me to think about what have I done in this year that actually matters. I've done a lot of busy work. I've done a lot of things. But when it's all said and done, what have I done this year that's going to make a, a, a lasting impact on my family, on my children, on my neighbors, my coworkers, those around me, even on myself? What have I done to help further the kingdom of God? As I was kind of thinking about this topic, I... Uh, you know, wanted to do something about gratitude, something about giving thanks. And uh, one year I preached, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. That was 
many years ago, and I talked about how there's so much need and so much heartache in our world that it can be almost overwhelming when you see the size and scope of the problem, that you don't even know where to start or what to do. And this year is not any better. I feel like year after year, for the past several years, our country has been more and more divided. Uh, unfortunately, more and more divided, sometimes over the dumbest things of all, but we live in a society right now where no one can, can rationally talk with one another and share ideas and remain friendly with one another. Now it is, I'm right, you're wrong. If you disagree, I can't be friends with you. Uh, I know stories of families who stopped hanging out with each other because of different viewpoints. And it makes me think that the holiday season, this idea of giving thanks, has, has really become more of a cliché more of a thing that we do in the season, but never anywhere else. And I think that's a problem, especially within the church. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, cultivate the habit of being grateful for every good thing that comes to you and to give thanks continuously. And because all things have contributed to your advancement, you should include all things in your gratitude. Now, the full context of the speech that he was writing here is basically saying that gratitude many times is much more about perspective than it is about actual events. It's how you choose to look at the things in your life and whether you choose to be pessimistic and, and complain or whether you choose to look at them and say, this is an opportunity for me to grow. Now, a, a slightly more, I guess I would say, religious commentator wrote this. If we acquire a good through exchange, effort, or achievement, or by right, then we don't typically feel gratitude. Gratitude is an emotion we feel in response to receiving something good, which is undeserved. Now, it's this last part of the quote uh, that mankind has seemed to really begin to have a hard time with. Receiving something good, which is undeserved. And I'll explain why here. You see, the light of humility has been fading from our society for a long time. And I fear that this degradation of humility as a whole has crept its way into churches, not just across our country, but I would say across this world. A few years ago, there was a, a pastor from Cameroon in Africa who had came to the States to do a little uh, visiting. And, and while he was here, he visited several large, what we would call mega churches. Uh, to see what all the hype was about and to go and, and listen. And as he listened to these messages, he became very disillusioned because he was hearing this, this thing that we often uh, coin as the prosperity gospel. And prosperity gospel basically meaning that God wants you to live your best life now. God doesn't want you to struggle. God doesn't want you to go through hardship. God wants you to have a picture-perfect life right now. That is essentially what is being taught often by many people who have this prosperity mindset. He felt very troubled by this. So when he went back to Cameroon, he was preaching at a conference, and he kind of alluded to some of this in his message. When the message ended, there was him and a couple other ministers and, and lay people standing around just kind of chatting. And he brought this back up, and he gave some specific examples of phrases that he heard while he was here in the States about being rich and wealthy and how that they completely leave out the whole spiritual aspect of what we are supposed to be doing. Uh, you, you can imagine his surprise when one of the ladies piped up and said this, Jesus became poor 
so that we might become rich. We are not meant to suffer. God has not destined us for anything but riches and health. Suffering, pain, and poverty are not the portion of a true believer because Jesus died to purchase those things for us. And now you see why the last part of that quote that I just read about if we acquire a good through exchange, effort, or achievement, or by right, then we typically don't feel gratitude. Gratitude is an emotion we feel in response to receiving something good, which is undeserved. The problem is, is that too many in the church think that we deserve riches. People have begun to believe that we deserve to be treated like royalty. We, we deserve to be, uh, have our best life now. And because we believe that we deserve that, the concept of gratitude goes out the window. Because gratitude is when you look at something and you say, I did nothing to earn that thing, and yet it was still freely given to me. But because of the mindset of, well, Christ did that, I deserve it now. You can see why gratitude is less and less and less common. I imagine if I go back generations, the older people of any given generation would say, oh, kids today don't have gratitude anymore. Yeah, that's probably true. But unfortunately, it's not a generation thing. It's a sin thing. The issue is not about your age, but about your maturity within Christ. I know some people who are far older than I, who are far less grateful than maybe I am. I also know some children who have gone through some horrible things in life, who are more grateful than some of the richest people. Gratitude, despite what this world may say, gratitude should not be about how you feel in the moment. But gratitude should be how that you look over your life and all of the mistakes you've made and all of the experiences you've lived, and yet still you see the hand of God gently guiding you toward a relationship with him. Much like everything else in this walk with God, gratitude has far less to do with you than it does with how you view him. Now, there are a few things that make me more irritated with my kids than when they are ungrateful. As most of you know, I have spent the past several years working, uh, wrapping up my bachelor's degree in nursing, and then now I'm almost done with my master's degree in nursing education, and uh, it has required countless hours of studying and research and homework, all the while working 12-hour shifts overnight in the ER, raising three kids, trying to find time to prepare messages to stand before you and speak, and, and all the while feeling like I'm going to pull my hair out because I don't know where the extra minutes are going to come each day. So you can imagine when my, my youngest, Genevieve, comes to me and says, Dad, can you play this game with me? And I have to tell her, no, not today. Dad has to finish up his homework before he goes to work, or Dad has to finish this before he can move on to the next thing. And she looks a little disappointed. And then sometimes, as we're kind of chatting about this, she'll say things like, Dad, you never do anything with me. Now, look, we've all been there. Kids, kids say what they feel in the moment, whether it's actual truth and reality or whether it's just what they're feeling in that exact moment, right? That's nothing new. I imagine every parent in this room at some point has heard their kids say something, and they're like, where did they get that from? I would never say that to someone. 
But kids often, especially younger, don't always have the filter to be able to look to the payoff, to the reward for the work. So there are days I feel stressed. And truth be told, there are days maybe that I even feel like a little bit of a failure because I don't have enough time or energy to do all the things that I want to do with my kids. I don't always have all the time or the energy or opportunity to invest in them stories that I would like to share. And every time I get to the place where I feel like, okay, I'm just going to stop all the other stuff and stay home. I remember why it was that I started this journey for these degrees in the first place. My journey into getting my master's degree had nothing to do with the prestige of a title or the prestige of having more money. And don't get me wrong, I would not mind more money, but that was not my ultimate goal. My ultimate goal has been if I can position myself in a way to have better hours, a little more flexibility over my schedule, then I can focus on what is ultimately the most important thing in my life, God and my family. So every day that I feel overstressed and overwhelmed that I need to quit, I just remind myself, okay, this is what I'm working toward. I'm working toward having the opportunity to be there for my kids. So when I have those days where my kids are like, oh, dad's working on homework again. He won't play with us, won't hang out with us. You know, there's part of my flesh that wants to be like, you are so ungrateful. Like, you don't understand all that I'm doing for you, all the, the sacrifices and the time and the, the, the times I spend um, uh, trying to do homework while working in the ER, which is not very easy, let me tell you. But it's because they don't yet have that life experience. And the truth is, I shouldn't expect them to. I shouldn't expect my seven-year-old daughter to understand what it means to sacrifice for the future. She hasn't reached that place. She hasn't lived through some of the things that I've lived through throughout my youth. But as I was thinking about this story, I began to think about something. Because you see, unfortunately, we do the exact same thing to God. There are times in our lives when we are facing a struggle, we're facing an issue, or or it can be selfish. It's just a want we really, really, really want. I really want that new whatever, that gadget, that position, that title, whatever the case is. We really want this thing. Or God, I really just need you to deliver me from this one thing. So we talk to God and we say, okay, God, I'll work out a deal with you. If you will give me this one thing over here, then I will forever be grateful. If you will uh, help me to get through this one hard trouble that I'm going in right now, if you will do that, then I will follow your word, I will be thankful, I will be grateful. Now imagine if you can for just a moment, the God of the universe listening to this type of bargain. Because I am a very visual person, I often play these conversations out in my mind. It's just the way it becomes real for me, the way that I can kind of conceptualize it. So in my mind, this is what I hear. So what you're saying is, Creating the entire world for you wasn't enough? Are you saying that creating a paradise for man to live in wasn't enough for you to be grateful? And when man sinned and I provided a cloak of animal skin to cover the shame and nakedness that man brought about, was that not enough? 
When man's wickedness forced my hand to wash the earth clean by the flood, and yet my grace still made an ark for anyone willing to choose me over their wickedness. Was that not enough for you? I made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that all of the earth would be blessed if they would just follow my directions. And instead of gratitude, man chose time and time again to trust in the rulers of this world instead of me. And then when those same ungrateful people found themselves as slaves in Egypt... My mercy reached them in the middle of their bondage. I raised up Moses who would lead them supernaturally. Part the Red Sea. Send food from heaven. Lead them by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud of smoke in the day. Was that not enough? And yet despite these miracles, they would take and melt their jewelry and build a false idol to thank while my presence loomed in the mountain right next to them. Was that still not enough? Despite man's ungrateful heart, I sent prophet after prophet after prophet to declare a Messiah was coming. Yet despite my continuing grace and mercy, you killed my prophets and turned to wicked kings for protection. Yet still I have kept my word. From the beginning of time, I have declared that I would be a savior for my people. From the beginning, I knew I would have to pay a debt I did not owe for a people who could not pay it. But was this still not enough? I walked with you on this earth, teaching all who would listen. I performed miracles and sat at the seat with the lowliest of people. And yet, was this not enough? Despite all of this, I was betrayed by the very same people I came to save. And yet still I willingly hung on a cross while they mocked me and spit at me. I stayed quiet as the cat of nine tails ripped into my flesh time and time again. Upon my back would be the sin of all humanity. But was it still not enough? How can we look at God and say, God, if you will do this one more thing, I will worship you. And yet ignore all of the things that God has done from the beginning of time. What it says is that we as a people lack gratitude the way that we should. Because you see, gratitude says that though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Gratitude says if I make my bed in hell, I know that God is still there. I'm not preaching a message of condemnation to you, but a message of repentance from me. Because I know in my own life, I have had moments of ungratefulness. I've had moments where I've looked at my position in life and I say, God, why can't I be a little higher up the chain? Or I've looked at my life and I say, God, why did I have to go through all of that? As though I were someone special that didn't need to suffer, even though Christ did. It is an issue of the heart. It's nothing new. It's not something new to our generation, to our country, to any specific race or ethnicity. It is an issue of sin. I find it interesting that in Paul's writings to 
the different churches and all of his epistles, he mentions the concept of gratitude more than 40 times in his epistles to the churches. Because he understood that this thing about being grateful and having a heart of gratitude was a key component of living a life that was pleasing to God. In Colossians chapter 3 it says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall he ye also appear with him in glory. Moreover, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, inordinate affection, on and on. Verse 6 says, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Verse 7, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all of these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have been renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian or Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Now listen here in verse 14 and 15. What is taking place here is Paul is teaching or writing a message to this church, the church of the Colossians. And he is trying to help them to get a mindset, to be able to face all of the trials that they're facing. And he's reminding them, all this wickedness that you see, you also used to do. I want you to turn away from that. But something on top of that, how that's going to help you to remember to stay away from that, is found here in verse 14. And above all these things, put on charity or love, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body. And be ye thankful. Those three words there, be ye thankful. In some regards, seems kind of like common sense. Like, we should be grateful to God. But what Paul is trying to communicate in this letter, he said, you're looking at all the trouble around you. You're looking at all of these people who are doing all of these bad things. And yet you seem to have forgotten that you yourself was in that group at one point. But through God's mercy, he pulled you out of that and gave you a new heart and a new mind. And the way that you're going to remember that, the way that you're going to remember that you were at one point no different or better than them is by being thankful to God for the salvation that he provided you. You see, being thankful toward God helps us to remember our place. It helps us to understand that I didn't become better than them because of who I am. I didn't become better than them because of my perfection. The reason that I'm separate from them now is solely for the righteousness of Christ. And the heart of gratitude helps me to remember that. So that I don't become egotistical and look at others 
down the tip of my nose and say, ooh, better than them. Instead, I remember, yeah, that was me. And that's why I have to keep reaching for them. Because just as much as I deserve uh, forgiveness and mercy, if I believe that God wanted it toward me, he wants it toward them also. In the book of Ephesians chapter 5, we see a very similar message. Now Paul, uh, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And he's kind of talking about some of the same things. Well, listen to what he says here. We're looking at verse 15 through 20. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now I love this because what he is setting up right here is he is saying, listen, do not be foolish as the world, but be wise. And now he's going to lay out to them how they can become wise, how they can walk in wisdom. And he goes on and he says in verse 18, he said, be not drunk with wine where is excess, but be filled with the spirit speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, wisdom will come to you when you spend a lifetime worshiping God. When you make it a habit, part of your very DNA, to constantly be singing at least in your heart, of God's goodness, it takes the attention away from you and puts it where it belongs toward Christ. And when we do that, when we have our affection continually turned toward God, we begin to see the world as God sees the world. And now here is the wisdom. We don't look at others as our enemies, but as someone who needs a helping hand. We don't look at others as being less than us. We see an opportunity for salvation to be extended beyond these four walls. Wisdom often comes from a right perspective. See, this world will tell you that wisdom is all about knowledge. Wisdom is all about how many books you can read and how smart you can get. But I know a lot of very smart people who have no wisdom at all. Incredibly smart. But they lose it all because they have no idea how to have relationships with people. They have so much intelligence, but their ego drives them to a place of alienating everyone else from their life. That's not wisdom. What good is that intelligence going to do you if you end up alone? See, the wisdom of God is the ability to take his knowledge, his word, his uh, uh, victories, and say, God, help me to further that. Help me to be in your kingdom. To give you glory in all that I do. So now when I walk in wisdom, it's not in my intelligence. It's in the wisdom of God's word. To see people through spiritual eyes and not just through carnal eyes. Now we get down to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And again, the, the, the kind of theme here is these are all epistles that were written by Paul toward a specific church to address some underlying concerns. Now I'm going to start here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And in the beginning, it may seem very far from what I was just talking about. Because we're in a, it seems like we're going to completely switch gears, but 
It'll make sense here in a second. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Now, pause right here for a moment because if you've been here for any length of time, you have heard myself or Pastor Powell or both of us together, depending on which Wednesday you show up on, explain exactly what Paul is meaning here. Because there are many who try to say that there is no point in reading the book of Revelation or worrying about the rapture or reading any of that stuff because no man knoweth the day nor the hour. And so the, their answer is, we'll just ignore all of that. And as long as I just, you know, come to church every once in a while, that's good. I don't have to worry about anything else. Well, first, I would challenge you to read Jesus' own words in Matthew 24 because he says very strongly numerous times there and in Luke that if we are in Christ, we are commanded to watch. We are to watch for the return of our Savior. But in this particular passage here, because we're talking about gratitude, one of the things that, that Paul is trying to illustrate to the people is this. There are people who are in the dark that will be overtaken as a thief. But then there are people who are in the light or of the day that should not be overtaken as a thief. Now, part of that difference is, is where our attention is paid. If our attention is paid only on earthly things and earthly concerns and living our best life now and, you know, becoming rich, then there's a good chance we will be of those people in the night. For proof of this, read the parable of the ten virgins. They were all virgins. In that passage, virgin wasn't referring to a literal virgin. It was a spiritual concept of those who were clean, who were spiritually clean. All ten were spiritually clean. But five of them, the Bible says, was foolish and did not watch for the return of Christ. And when he showed up, they were left because they were foolish. So he commands us to continually watch. And here in this passage is brought up again. Don't be of the night that you're overtaken as a thief, but watch. We are of the day. We should not be overtaken. Now, the same chapter, he kind of goes through and he lays out all of this groundwork. But listen to one of, the, one of the things as he wraps up this chapter in helping these people to understand how they can continually be in a place of preparedness watching for the return of Christ. We start in verse 16. Here it is. And I love the way this is done because he, all of this is in narrative format. And then we get to this last little section and it's a few succinct declarations for them to follow. Verse 16, rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. Listen to verse 18. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. It's kind of interesting because 1 Thessalonians, the book of 1 Thessalonians is believed by many to be the, one of the first epistles that Paul actually penned. And you can go back to Acts chapter 16 and see kind of how this unfolded. But 
the thing that I find interesting about that is one of his first letters to a church in writing and warning them. Now, remember, the church is newly established. It's just now like beginning to spread. But already Paul has enough wisdom and foresight through the Spirit to warn them. I know we're at the beginning of this journey, but listen, if you don't keep a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving, what's going to happen is you're going to become consumed like the Jews before you who cared more about things of the earth and less about the spiritual things. And before you know it, you will be so blinded that Christ will return and you are completely unaware. The reason why I know that's true, if you look at the Old Testament, Scripture after scripture, prophecy after prophecy uh, was given. Hundreds, literally hundreds, that foretold of the first coming of Christ. All of it, where he would be born, how he would be born, how that he would stand before Pilate as, as a lamb dumb before its shear, wouldn't say anything to, to defend himself. All of that was written. And yet so few of those Jews, those elite individuals who thought they knew the word of God forward and back missed it because they cared less about the gratitude toward God and more about their position to lord over the people next to them and if we're not careful when we lose that spirit of gratitude within ourselves we become more disgruntled and upset by our current plight in life that we lose the sight of why we're walking this journey in the first place this is not your home. This is not meant to be the mansion you live in. I'm not saying that God doesn't love you and doesn't want you to prosper. I'm not saying that. God blesses us. We know that. Scripture tells us all the time about how that if a good father giveth gifts, how much more shall our heavenly father give gifts to his people? The difference is we have to know what good gifts actually are. In our mind, good gifts is money. In God's eyes, good gifts are stamina, blessings, mercy, relationships, things that will actually help us to accomplish the mission before us. The way that we can keep our eyes focused on what's ahead of us is to remain a heart of, have a heart of gratitude that knows God is continually looking out for me. I may not understand why right now. I may not exactly be happy about what I'm going through, but I'm still going to have enough trust and faith in God that he is much smarter than me, which may not be a very high bar. But that's okay, because he founded everything, and therefore, if I trust in him, that's all I really need to know. Spend my life getting to know him, and less worried about how much I know about everything else. In the end, we'll work out. Now, I have one final passage as we begin to, to wrap up tonight. I want to go to Psalms chapter 136. And before we read this, I'm going to give you just a little bit of backdrop. Now, Pastor Powell has spent the past literally few years going through all of the Psalms, so hopefully I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. But let me lay a little bit of groundwork for you. David. David, who was the young man tending to his father's sheep. David, who was the young man sitting alone on a hillside, playing his heart before God. This young man who, from early on, developed a heart of worship unto God. A heart that was primarily centered on recognizing where God was and that he wasn't God. We see David have some great successes early in life. 
He slays the lion and the bear and then he fights uh, the giant. And, and, and rightfully so, when he stands before the giant, he doesn't say, I'm going to come and kick your butt. He says, God's going to take care of this. So he trusted God in that moment. He had developed a life of worship and understanding who God was that brought him to this moment that when he faced his greatest struggle, he could rely on God to take care of the rest. But we also know that that same David made a lot of mistakes throughout his life. Right? A lot. Murder, adultery, uh, paganism. I mean, a lot. But the thing is, is that when we look at those mistakes, we try to compare them as what we do. We look at his mistakes and we're like, I don't know how God was merciful to him. I mean, look at all the stuff he did. And yet we go back to what I said earlier about the God of the universe listening to us whining and complaining about the fact that he doesn't do anything for us. And yet we laid out all the times that God's mercy has extended throughout generation and time to reach us where we are. So what, what David was so successful at was not that he was the wisest man. What David was so successful at was not that he was a man who was perfect. David was successful because his heart was always able to be drawn back to that spirit that said, God, man, I messed it up again. I am sorry in a heart of true repentance. Not just lip service, but in attempts to repair what was wrong. That's why it's so amazing that when David went to buy the land of where the temple would eventually be built, the lady who he's buying the land from told him, because she knew who he was, and she said, no, 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 you just take that land. But David said, no, if this is going to mean anything for me, it has to cost me something. He recognized that he made a ton of mistakes in his life, mistakes that he could never repay on his own. But he also recognized, for me to truly give my life to God, I have to let go of some other things and put my energy in this direction. So it was going to cost him something to take that journey. So now with all of that picture in mind, between all of his mistakes, all of his victories, all of that, look at Psalms 136. And this is not a singular psalm. You see this throughout all of the book of Psalms. But here it is. Here's my closing thoughts to you. Psalms 136. Give thanks... Unto the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. Give thanks unto the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. To him alone doeth great wonders, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that stretched out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that made great lights, for his mercy endureth forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endureth forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that smote Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endureth forever. And brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endureth forever. With a strong hand and with a stretched out arm, for his mercy endureth forever. To him which divided the Red Sea into parts, for his mercy endureth forever. And made Israel to pass through the midst of it, for his mercy endureth forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his mercy endureth forever. To him which led his people through the wilderness, 
for his mercy endureth forever. To him which smote great kings, for his mercy endureth forever. And slew famous kings, for his mercy endureth forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endureth forever. When you read this chapter, it can be easy for you to say, man, why does he just keep saying the same phrase over and over and over? Like, we get it, dude. His mercy endureth forever. But what you don't see written there in this one passage is the heart that led him to this place. All of his mistakes, not just him, but his people. All of the many times that they sinned against God. All of the many times that they failed to hold their end of the bargain toward God. He looks at all of the mess and, and mire that man has created. And yet in the midst of all of that, he also sees the mercy of God. Each time continually calling for his people. You see where you and I would have probably gave up after the first big mistake. Maybe if you're super spiritual, maybe you would have given two or three chances. But when time after time and generation after generation continue to ignore, you would say, okay, fine, I'm done with you. And yet what we see over and over throughout Scripture is God saying, I still love you. Not happy with what you did. There's going to be some consequences. But I still love you. When he told Adam in the garden that, you know, look, you brought this on yourself. He still loved him. You see, our earthly view of love is, is uh, appeasing our actions and saying that we will just, you know, not worry about it, let it go. And, you know, it's all good. We love you. But God's love is not like that because God is perfect. And therefore, he cannot go against his very nature. He can't say, I love you, so I'm just going to like pretend like you didn't do any of those things and it's okay, we'll, just, we'll let you slide on in. It's not the way God works. But his love does make an opportunity for atonement for all of those mistakes. And the mercy part comes in because you are not the one who made the atonement. You are not the one, I am not the one who paid the price for all of those mistakes. So here we find David. Again, in my mind, because I'm a visual individual, a visual person, I see him on a hillside alone, separated from all the followers, separated from all the people. And I don't, I don't have scripture for this. I'm just, in my mind, this is just how I think about it. We see David sitting on a hill alone, back to where he started from in the first place, saying, God, it's me again. I messed up again. I said I wasn't going to do that thing, and yet I did. God, I am so grateful that your mercy doesn't walk out on me like those of my friends. God, I am so grateful that you don't turn against me because you get jealous like Saul did. I'm so glad, God, that you don't write me off the first time I mess up the way many of the others in his kingdom did. Let's all stand. Here is my hope for you this holiday season. The point of this message, while it may bring about some conviction is a good thing, 
Because we should always look at God's word and say, how can I improve? How can I become more like him? Because I don't know about you, but I haven't quite arrived there yet. And so I need the word of God to show me the things that are wrong in the areas that are still messed up so that I can try each day to press toward that mark. So whereas the enemy would come in and like to tell you that, oh, you should feel so condemned. He was talking about you. You should just quit. I rebuke that because it's not condemnation that you should feel. It is God's conviction. And there is a huge difference. You see, God's love uses conviction to touch your heart and to say, yeah, you heard that message. You know, you know what he's talking about. But it's okay. I'm with you. My mercy is there for you to repent, get back up, and let's go again. This season, help us to all have a heart of gratitude. Not just gratitude for the things we have, not just gratitude for the money in our bank or lack thereof. Gratitude that the king of the universe reaches each one of us individually and is constantly seeking to get to know you better and for you to get to know him better. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for all that you've done. That though I was yet a sinner, still you died for me, Lord. That somehow you looked from the, the beginning of time and knew that there would be a young man who made so many mistakes and messed up so many times. And yet through all of that, your love was able to overcome. Lord, we are so grateful that your mercy covers a multitude of sins. That your grace is sufficient. That you were with us in the good times and in the bad times. I pray this holiday season that we would remember where the gratitude should really lie. And that is with you. Help us to remember in all of the gifts we give. To give the greatest gift of all which is our lives back to the one who created them in the first place. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.